1: Relationships are hard, and that's why I'm here. Hey friend, it's Cami Crawford. Think of me as your big sister slash Audible BFF that you could always trust to give you the real tea. This is my show, Relationship, the advice podcast that covers all relationship topics. Send your story to hello at or DM me at relationship on IG and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Listen and follow Relationship with Cammy Crawford on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I used to go out dancing every Thursday night. This was decades ago. I must have been about 20 at the time. My friends and I would drive out to this club in West Hollywood that was all 60s soul music and Britpop, this music that was big in the UK at the time. It was a whole scene full of people who were trying to escape, people who were pretending to be somewhere else or someone else. Some guys wore mod suits and parkas on the dance floor, even though it was 80 degrees outside. At the time, I was feeling really stuck. I was still working the same job I'd had in high school at a movie theater, and I was living with my mom, sharing a bedroom in our apartment with my little brother, who was in middle school. I'd stayed at home to try and save money while I went to college, but now I was at the point where I needed out. It was getting a little pathetic. I wanted to move to L.A., which is, you know, just like half an hour away from where I grew up in Whittier. But I couldn't figure out how to make it happen. I could barely get around the city. My car was old and it would overheat. The brakes had gone out on me twice. Sometimes when you made a turn, the horn would engage and that fucker was loud. I'd have to hop out, open the hood, and pull on a wire to disconnect it. I'll say it because I know you're thinking it. Was kind of a loser. But every Thursday night when I was out dancing, I got to escape all that. Certain songs would bring everyone out on the dance floor. And there was this one in particular that took everything that made me feel like a loser and turned it into a virtue. She
2: came from Greece, She, had for she studied sculpture at St. Martin's College, where I
0: is Common People, a song by the band Pulp. In the song, Pulp's lead singer Jarvis Cocker tells a story about this woman, this art student from Greece. She's rich, but she wants to try slumming it for a bit, to live like she's poor. She said, I want to
2: live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. want to sleep with common could I do? I said, oh, I'll see what I can do.
0: The song is funny. It's acerbic. It's one of the first songs I heard that took all the suffering of the working class and made it feel like a badge of honor. In the end, Jarvis tells the woman that she's never going to understand what it's like to struggle because she's got a safety net. She can just call her dad to bail her out. But mostly what I like about Common People is that you can dance to it. It can transport you. On a full, sweaty dance floor, I didn't live in Whittier. I didn't share a bedroom with my kid brother. I didn't need a car or a job. I could move. And from this new vantage point, I could see that the world was bigger than I thought it was. Like the fantasies I'd had about escaping the suburbs and building a different life were only the start of what was possible. But she didn't. I'm Jonathan Menhivar, and this is Classy, a show about the chasms between us that are really hard to talk about but too big to ignore. Today, we reach across the chasm of the Atlantic and talk to my working-class hero, Jarvis Cocker, because I thought he might have something to say about how you move beyond the borders of your class when you can't see over the walls. Jarvis built an entire career by writing songs about the deep class issues he was trying to outrun, growing up in the working-class city of Sheffield. But how do he actually do it? His very long path to common people is a story about a guy who needs a lucky break, but can't figure out how to make it happen. Along the way, he makes some super bad decisions, nearly dies, until he finally does get the break he was looking for, and of course, finds out that success is more confusing and complicated than he'd imagined. Last year, Jarvis Cocker released a memoir called Good Pop, Bad Pop. And in the book, it's clear that he spent a good portion of his life lost in a kind of fantasy world. It started with television. Jarvis says as a kid, he wanted to live inside the TV, to actually crawl in there somehow. Yeah, I
2: never tried it. But, I mean, TVs <laughs> were boxes rather than just screens in those days, so it seemed possible as a kid. Uh, you know, having something actually in your house that would show you pictures of the world or give you ideas about the world, then you just have to then compare your life to that. And so I would kind of sometimes imagine, you know, if, if somebody was watching my life on TV, would they turn over to another channel because it was so boring? <laughs> it, 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 it It makes you look for some kind of plot line or excitement
0: and what was the, the thing you were seeing on tv that you wanted I,
2: anything really i didn't really have any um, taste <laughs> yeah there used to be a program called time tunnel do you remember that one it was like a thing it was an american show that was put onto uh, uk tv and each week they would go into this tunnel and it would either take them back in time or into the future they never really knew until they walked into the tunnel where they were going to go.
0: Come with me now further into the past. It's the early 70s. We're in northern England in the suburb of Sheffield where Jarvis grew up called Intake. It's got this industrial name, but it's also kind of rural.
2: And that's one of the things they say about Sheffield. Although it was an incredibly industrial city and uh, incredibly polluted with all the stuff that went on in the steel factories... It had the nickname of the dirty picture in a golden frame because it's got amazing countryside around it. Uh, it seemed just like a normal kind of place to me.
0: Sheffield in the 70s and 80s when Jarvis was growing up is kind of the crucible of working-class struggle in the same way Detroit might be here in America. That time in England is defined by class conflict and Sheffield was right at the center of it. The city had relied on jobs from the steel industry, but then the factories were nationalized. Then a recession hit.
2: It was a pretty grim time. It was the beginning of, of Margaret Thatcher's tenure as, as the prime minister of the country. So everything, you know, Sheffield basically got closed down. Not that I would have gone into a job in a steel factory because I wouldn't have lasted five minutes because I haven't really got the physical uh, capabilities to do that, but... Um, you know, that was why the
0: city was there. One day when he's seven, Jarvis' dad picks up and leaves. He doesn't say anything. He just goes. All the way to Australia. Jarvis doesn't talk to him for decades. His immediate family, then, is mostly women. His mom, grandma, his sister, two aunts. And like lots of shy, skinny kids with glasses growing up, working class... There are people in Jarvis's life who think he needs some toughening up. One of them gets him a job in a fish market. My mum kind of, after
2: my dad had left, my mum had various relationships. And I remember one was with a guy who was like a, a scrap metal merchant. He tried to toughen me up a bit. And I think it was a friend of his, a kind of gangster kind of guy who was involved in the market who got me the job on this fish stall maybe as a joke because I mean I, it just ended up that I stunk a fish every Saturday but it wasn't very good you know if I wanted to go to a party because it's if I was trying to um, overcome my shyness and talk to a girl I was I was very self-conscious about the fact that I probably either smell of fish or bleach which I used to kind of hold my hands in to try and get rid of the smell
0: of fish Shy, stinky Jarvis spends a lot of time in his head, fantasizing about a different kind of life. He wants to be famous, wants to make music that can change the world. And then punk rock happens just as he's becoming a teen, which makes it seem possible. But instead of forming a band, he makes up a pretend one. In a school notebook, he actually writes a manifesto for his new band that doesn't exist yet. He says they're going to write, quote, fairly conventional yet slightly offbeat pop songs. He's 15 when he does this, and the manifesto has all the bravado of a teenager. It's so clear he's still a kid. There are these descriptions and drawings of the clothes the band is supposed to wear, duffel coats and pointy boots and garish t-shirts. Jarvis even draws album covers before he's written a single song. From the beginning, the band is called Pulp. After throwaway culture, like dime store novels and comic books.
2: And you've got to think, you know, I came up with the idea for the band when I was very young, so I was still reading comics and things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. You're still allowed to read comics at 15, aren't you? You are. After living in this fantasy world for a bit, Jarvis invites some friends in. They go over to his grandparents' house and drink beer in their sitting room. Jarvis plays guitar. One friend plays the organ. Another friend bangs on a coal bucket. Jarvis looks around the room and it's actually happening. At, at some point, the band uh, becomes a real band. Um, you write a bunch of songs, you start playing shows, you record a demo, um, and you kind of have a big break. You have a chance to give uh, your demo tape to John Peel, which I, I should just explain for people John Peel is like a legendary BBC DJ often broke bands on his show
2: yeah i mean i'd been listening to the john peel show because this, that was the only show on national radio that would play punk music or any kind of alternative music really and um the good thing with the john peel sessions you would often get bands that would be the first time they'd ever been recorded you know you would discover things before they'd ever released anything so that was like the real thing to aspire to.
0: Pulp had recorded a demo in a local Sheffield studio in some guy's house. And then, by happenstance, a couple weeks later, it turned out that John Peel was coming to Sheffield to do a live DJ set. So Jarvis went and brought along a copy of the demo in a little homemade sleeve.
2: I gave it to him at the end of the performance that he'd been doing, and he kind of took it off me and said, oh, I'll listen to that on my way home in the car. I didn't know whether to believe that or not because I knew that countless people gave him tapes. Then about a week later, there was a phone call while I was at school that my grandmother answered with the hit John Peel's producer saying, you know, we'd like you to come and record a session for us. And my grandmother said, oh, I think you must mean my grandson, not me. Um, (laughs) And she told me about it when I came back from school. So, yeah, I, I was... I was about two weeks away from my 18th birthday. So when that happened, I thought, well, this is it. You know, um, I'm going to be famous.
0: I'm going to be a pop star. So there's no need to go to college. Jarvis and the band show up to do their Peel session. They're finally in a real studio. But they're young. The drummer is 15. In the recording from that session, you can hear how scrappy they are.
2: It was a real mess, really, because we had to borrow lots of equipment because we didn't really have very much equipment of our own um somebody had made us a synth drum from uh, reading some kind of home electronics magazine but it was made out of uh, that the trigger was like a pad that you would use in a burglar alarm and it was pressure sensitive but it was really insensitive you had to really whack it
0: So that's in 1981. You think you're going Mm. to be a big pop star, you decide not to go to college, and then what happens?
2: Yeah, then the dark
0: years began. The John Peel session plays on the BBC a couple of times, and then nothing. Band members decide they need to move on with their lives, and they go on to college. Jarvis keeps writing songs, gets some new band members, then they decide they need to move on with their lives too. Jarvis is living in an old factory in Sheffield, rent-free, because a friend is looking after the building. People are not supposed to live there. There's no heat, it's cold, and Jarvis makes it worse when he tears down a wall. If you look up at the ceiling, you can see the sky. He's getting government assistance, about 30 pounds a week. And other than the occasional pulp show and nights out at the disco, things are bleak. Even though Jarvis has spent his whole life in this working-class city, he isn't sure where he fits in. On the one hand, there's lots of college kids in Sheffield, but they're mostly middle-class students from other parts of the UK.
2: And you could go to their parties, but they were a bit kind of, um, I don't know, they just got on our nerves, really. Then you would have uh, people who were working in factories and stuff like that, who. We used to call them townies. Um, they were just really violent. I mean, if you walked through a certain part of town and you were wearing some kind of alternative clothing, they would just jump on you and beat you up.
0: At the time, there's a coal miner strike that lasts a year. All across the country, people are protesting, trying to stop these mines from being shut down.
2: I sympathize with the miners, and I found it difficult to totally... Go along with it because although I agreed with their struggle, I didn't like getting beaten up so it was <laughs> I, had a, I had a slightly ambivalent attitude to to it. The city was going through this massive kind of nervous breakdown because everything had closed there were no jobs. Um, especially I was very aware of it where we were living because it was an old factory. Um, there were just lots of other buildings around there massive massive buildings that would have had thousands of people going in and working in them and they were just all empty and falling into disrepair you know so it was a dark time yeah it was I mean you know I had fun but um, it just seemed like nothing was happening Sheffield was just going down and down and down and I didn't want to go down
0: with the ship you know But before Jarvis can leave, this thing he's been doing, imagining himself to be the hero of his fantasy life, it gets him in trouble. But it also leads to this life-altering experience. One night in 1985, he's hanging out with this girl at her flat. He's trying to impress her, and he decides he's gonna try something he'd seen a guy do at a party a few days before. The guy had opened a window in the kitchen walked out on the window ledge, and then climbed back into another window about three feet away. So Jarvis, he's with this girl, but the windows in her flat, they're a little different. There's not really a ledge he can walk on.
2: So I came up with this bad idea that because I couldn't stand on the window ledge, I would hang from the window by my fingers and then swing to the next ledge and then pull myself back into the room. And it ended up with me hanging from the window, realising that I couldn't do it, realising that I didn't even have the strength to get myself back up into the room, her not being able to pull me up, no one else being around. And so I could feel that I was losing my grip. And so I just said, look, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to let go. And um, I hit the ground and and then realised that I'd done something bad. And I kind of looked up and forlornly said, Can you call an ambulance, please?
0: Jarvis has fallen 20 feet down to the pavement. His wrist and foot are fractured. And so is his pelvis. It's like the thing that happens in the movies when someone's hanging off the cliff, you know, and the the fingers are going.
2: Well, yeah, but then that's the thing, because it felt, you know, it, it would be a dramatic incident in a movie, But in real life, it wasn't. It was really banal. And and yet it was so kind of, it wasn't dramatic. There was no dramatic music playing. I didn't find the extra ounce of strength, which it definitely would have happened if it had been in the movies, you know. Life isn't scripted.
0: Jarvis would spend more than a month in a hospital bed. More stuck in Sheffield than he'd ever been before. When we come back, how this fall leads to a creative breakthrough.
1: Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a four eyes media production presented by odyssey you can get it on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts
0: dana carvey and david spade here you might know our podcast fly on the wall featuring guests from across the entertainment industry we decided to do a off called superfly and it's fun it's just two of us riffing on current events pop culture catching up impressions joe trump's trying to be a dictator yeah, she says, uh, uh, you know, bump on the tater tots. Joe, no. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to and follow Superfly on the
2: Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast.
0: It's me, Jonathan Manhevar, your very classy host, welcoming you back. So Jarvis has all these broken bones. He's getting around in a wheelchair when he's moving at all. Mostly, he's lying in bed in a hospital. But he still wants to work on songs. So a friend stops by with a keyboard.
2: Yeah, it was just like one of those kind of Casio keyboards that I could play with headphones so that I could try and write things. Because it was like an old-fashioned kind of hospital. They don't really have them anymore now, like a convalescent hospital. So so there were like 20 guys all in the same room. And there's no way I was going to be there like strumming an acoustic guitar while they could all listen. (laughs) They would have thrown things at me anyway. So I just... uh, tried with this keyboard yeah which had a disco setting on it and I kind of maybe because I couldn't dance anymore and I had been going to nightclubs and dancing so I started trying to write um, dance music I suppose using this disco setting
0: that was on the keyboard and I, I, I mean, I have to say like a disco rhythm button on a little Casio keyboard like that. It's kind of cheap sounding, you know. It is not the like something bass. Uh... Well,
2: if you got the headphones and turned them up a bit, it was not bad. But also, it, it, you know, it would do it for as long as it took you to come up with an idea. You could just make it go, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum. I mean, I haven't got it here. I've got an Omnicord here. I can make a noise with that. Unfortunately, this hasn't got a disco setting, but it's got a...
0: Br- bring it up to the mic so we can hear it when you start playing. Oh, we will
2: do, yeah. Don't you worry. Here we go. Oh. So let's get this. Up. And also the chord sequences aren't that great on this, but... So, you know, I could get that going. You in? There you are. Hours of pleasure.
0: So with this cheap disco rhythm running, Jarvis realizes something else. He'd spent all this time imagining some fantasy future for himself that television viewers would applaud. He'd been inside his head, pretending to be famous, pretending he wasn't stuck in Sheffield, getting beaten up by townies. But falling and crashing into the ground, it's literally grounding. And while he's healing, he looks around at his life in Sheffield, and he realizes that it's interesting. He realizes that he has something he can write songs about.
2: So I just tried to put that into practice immediately. So I wrote little character studies of the people who were on the ward with me, and they were just like the notes that you would get in a detective novel, you know, like uh, suspect was wearing black raincoat, uh, slight limp, whatever,
0: you know, just things like that. The notes detail the injuries of other patients. Doug number one, about fifty, hit by a taxi, teeth removed to fix skull. There are notes about a man who's constantly farting. Another about a man named Ernest who groans all night but gets quieter and quieter until one morning when he dies. A couple of the men are minors recovering from accidents, and Jarvis gets to know them a bit and thinks, hey, these townies are all right. He'd been making class judgments about people, but up close, it turned out that there was more nuance than he'd allowed himself to see before. But mostly he's just scribbling, trying to take note of everything.
2: Because I didn't know exactly what I was looking for, but I thought if I could take everything down in enough detail, somehow that would make something happen. Uh, I I didn't know what the actual clue would be that would solve the case or the riddle of life. But uh, it was a big thing to, to move my focus from looking at the sky to looking at the ground, basically, looking at what was surrounding
0: me. With this new vision of the world healed and walking to a four-on-the-floor beat, Jarvis writes new pulp songs, and they release a new record. If this were a movie, they'd have a hit. But, you know, we've already established this is not a movie. Or if it is, it's one of those frustrating ones where the main character can't catch a break. So in 1988, two and a half years after falling out of the window, Jarvis moves to London to go to art school. And here in London, he's looking around And things are different. For the first time, he's seen people with money. Not
2: long after I'd have arrived, I was walking up from Leicester Square Tube to uh, the college, and there was a guy in in quite a posh suit with a woman, and he stopped, and then he vomited quite violently into a litter bin. (laughs) 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 And... Um, he obviously had money, but he'd got he'd gone out. He'd got drunk in the daytime, and now he was thrown up in a litter bin, and it wasn't very classy. And the woman looked really embarrassed as she was waiting for him to kind of tidy himself up. So I don't know. It's really stuck with me that image. Like, um, it sounds a bit trite to say, it, but money doesn't make you happy.
0: All this time, Jarvis had been stuck in dying Sheffield. He'd imagined being rescued by fame and money. But here was someone with all the comforts in the world who was obviously an embarrassingly uncomfortable. Jarvis also noticed that people seemed to be much more individually focused, running around pursuing whatever they'd come to London to make happen for themselves. He'd see it just getting around the city.
2: If you're on a bus and it's packed and it's raining outside, the windows steam up. And um, I I realized that people in, in London didn't
0: clean the window,
2: you know, so they could see the world outside. They would just leave it steamed
0: up. Yeah. What did it do for your class identity?
2: Well, the first thing I did was to start speaking in a much broader Sheffield accent than I had done when I was in Sheffield. Because I just thought, I don't want to start talking okay, how's it going? Like talking in a kind of like student accent. So I'd had this kind of problem with students, you know, when I was in Sheffield. So I, I've got all these very unfounded prejudices, which I have tried to get rid of as I've moved through life. But so, yeah, I probably put it on a bit.
0: He's still writing songs, still trying to make sense of the place he'd come from, which he can see a little better now now that he's got some distance from it. Pulp starts to get a little more attention. They sign to a major label. Then in 1995, 13 years after that John Peel session that went nowhere, Pulp finally gets a hit. So Common People, I, I know it's a big, fun pop record, but it is also very dark and angry. Um, that's that's just like me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were you feeling that? Were you a, a, about... Like the the class ideas that are in that song, were you feeling that that sentiment?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was just this girl. You know, uh, had we'd gone to the pub after a day at college, and um, we were just chatting about stuff, and she was just saying that she wanted to move to Hackney and live with the common people, and you know, the thing is it. In Sheffield, if you say someone's common, that's a real insult. It's like, oh, they're really common, them lot. You know, they they eat beans out of the tin. Um, people are always trying to make these kind of judgments about class, even within. You know, I mean, I think that's something we, we should say actually. You know that that in the place that I was brought up, it, it was there was quite a lot of variation within that. You would, walk if you drove through the area, you'd say, oh yeah, okay. This is a working class area. But within that area, there were lots of like subtle gradations in there of this bit's a bit lower than this bit, and this bit's a bit posture than this bit, you know.
0: Jarvis thought, this woman, she doesn't get the subtleties. She doesn't understand that common is an insult where I come from.
2: The fact that she'd used that word, which to me meant one thing and to her meant exactly the opposite, Showed that she didn't understand anything at all about these so called common people that she wanted to go and live
0: amongst. This woman may not have understood it, but listeners did. The song went all the way to number two on the UK singles chart. And just a month later, at the big British festival Glastonbury, Pulp closed their set with common people, and waves of fans were belting it along with them.
2: You wanna- I was just trying to get my head around what I actually thought about where my life was going, where I actually wanted to live, where I belonged. And so I couldn't really work it out. So. When I can't work things out, I get frustrated, and, and, and you get that in the song, I suppose.
0: Pulp goes on to release their first legitimately hit album, Different Class. It's full of dark, funny, subversive songs about Jarvis's favorite subjects. Sex and class. It goes to number one the week it's released.
2: I knew I was from the working-class background, but I didn't want to actively say... We are a working-class band. I wanted to find a different class. I didn't want to be like the guy throwing up in the bin either with his posh suit on. I wanted to find my own place to live, you know, and and people to live in that world with me.
0: I'd always heard Common People and the other songs on Different Class as a slam against the rich. But I hadn't caught this other bit. Jarvis was running from some of the same people he grew up with too. When I started working on this show, I was talking to an old friend, and he told me that he and I, we were kind of similar. We didn't necessarily make the choice to switch classes. We were running from where we came from, running from machismo and violence, and in my case, being forced to spend Saturdays working on cars with my stepdad. We were running from people who didn't respect us for who we were to a third in-between world. Like the one Jarvis was trying to create. This fantasy land where smart weirdos could thrive. The first song that's on the record,
2: uh, Miss Shapes, uh, you know, it's like a kind of call to all the other people who felt like they didn't really fit into any one particular category. It gets its title from... These chocolates that used to be sold in the corner shop that was uh, in front of our house, uh, something had gone wrong in the manufacturing process and they were a bit misshapen, so they were sold Uh. cheaper, but they tasted just as good as the perfect ones. And I just thought, well, I'm like that uh, as a person.
0: Pulp got swept up into a whole scene of other British bands that kids like me all the way in L.A. were dancing to. Almost overnight, Jarvis went from being an indie sensation to a genuine celebrity. He was on the cover of magazines and on TV game shows. He was one of the most famous men in England. People chased him down the street. He was suddenly tabloid fodder. I'm really curious what it's like to go from this guy who, uh, from your origins, you're, you're making music uh, with like cast-off instruments and, and just trying to, to do this to becoming a legitimate pop star with like money and fame and like you, you aren't suffering anymore.
2: Yeah. Terrible. It it was, (laughs) uh, yeah, it was, um, difficult really because, uh, I'd been doing it for so long by that point. Um, that I guess it had become more like a kind of, psychological crutch than a real ambition, but then it happened and I hadn't really thought about what I would do once it had happened or if it did happen. So basically I just didn't really handle it very well.
0: <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. What do you mean? Um, I just kind of lost it basically because I, I just had to, I had nothing to, uh, look at, I had nothing to inspire me. I, was, I So I just kind of picked myself apart.
0: You can hear this on the very first song that starts Pulp's next record. Jarvis is back in his head again. Trapped there. The record opens with these lyrics. Please excuse me, Jarvis, while I read them. This is our music from a bachelor's den. The sound of loneliness turned up to ten. And then a little later... This is the sound of someone losing the plot, making out that they're okay when they're not. So being isolated like that, no longer being able to observe uh, people on the street, like r- ordinary people, were you worried that it was going to take your voice away that you developed?
2: Yeah, I, I I, guess so, yeah, because um, I, I developed this idea that it was all about details and... Um, And about real life, you know, about real things that had happened. Um, And I didn't have that much of a real life anymore. So I just had to find a way out of it, really. You know, like now, I'm very happy. I can go on public transport again. So I'm back in the world. And uh, although that that world is not perfect, it's better. I didn't really like the the kind of uh, jet set world at all.
0: Do you feel like you have
2: uh, shifted classes? Probably. I've got a pepper grinder, so that makes me quite (laughs) middle class now.
0: I tried to push Jarvis on this, but he wasn't going to go there. I mean, joking about class, joking about how much money you have or don't have, that's what you do in uncomfortable moments like this. If Jarvis is the embodiment of working class issues... He's also the embodiment of the thing that happens to any of us who have jumped classes. The way that you can become kind of a walking contradiction of ideals you always defined yourself against. That even if you wanted to be comfortable and surround yourself with a few nice things, once you're there, you're dealing with a privilege you've never had before. You worry that you've turned your back on where you came from. You might even want to go out and smoke some cigarettes and play some pool and pretend you're one of the common people. Hope's last record came out in 2001. Jarvis says that even with his class shift, he still feels the intensity of what drove him to write Common People and the other songs on Different Class.
2: I'm realizing it at the moment, actually, because, you know, we're going to play some shows later this year. So we've been rehearsing and I have been singing those songs again. And it's really quite exhausting because there's a lot of uh, not really angst, but just a lot of intense emotion in there. I think I put a lot of what I was feeling at the time into those songs. And I really feel it when I sing them
0: now. thank you so much for this um i I should just tell you your music has meant so much to me uh, i I danced to it a lot uh, at, at a club when I was young and uh, that really like expanded my uh, idea of what was possible in the world
2: well thanks Johnson yeah well I mean that's it I mean as I say I at one point maybe I was disappointed that there wasn't a complete change in the world order but I think as I've got older, I think every little can help. So thank you. I'm glad glad that you got something from that, from the other side of the world. It's nice that it made some contact with you.
0: Jarvis Cocker. His memoir about all of this is called Good Pop, Bad Pop. When you're young, it's really easy to feel stuck in the place that you come from. Especially if you're growing up without money or a clear path to college or some kind of future. But in America, we do have one classic escape route that teenagers have been taking for generations. The military. On the next episode of Classy, we'll follow a group of army recruiters to find out how they convince young people to enlist. Before we get to the credits, the Classy team and I just want to say thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying the show so far. Please keep on sharing it with the Classy people in your life. And you know what's coming next. The best way for people to discover this show is if you take a few minutes to rate and review Classy on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Also, you can still hit us up on our Classy hotline. The number is 844 992 5277. We'd really love to hear any stories or questions that you have about CLASS. CLASSY is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. It's written and produced by me, Jonathan Manhevar. Our producer is Kristen Torres, Associate Producer Marina Henke, Senior Managing Producer Asha Saluja. Our editor is Haley Howell, Executive Editor Joel Lovell. Our assistant engineers are Sharon Bardalis and Jade Brooks. Senior engineers are Marina Pais and Pedro Alvira. Fact-checking by Jane Drinkard. This episode was scored and mixed by me, with additional scoring by Marina Pais, who also mixed it. Scoring assistance by Sharon Bardales. Music in this episode from Joseph Shabison, courtesy of Western Vinyl. Joseph Shabison and Vibrant Matter and Shabison and Gunning, courtesy of Seance Center. And Pulp, courtesy of Universal Music. Additional music from Epidemic Sound. Music licensing by Anthony Roman. Our artwork is by Kurt Courtney and Lauren Vira at Cadence 13. Marketing and promotion by Grace Cohen-Chen, Hilary Schuff, and Liz O'Malley. Legal services for Pineapple Street Studios by Crystal Tupia at Odyssey. Special thanks to Elia Einhorn, Talia Miller at Rough Trade, and Mog Yoshihara. Jenna weiss and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. The next episode will be out in a week. Make sure to listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.